You may open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 3. The third chapter of Paul's epistle to the saints of God in Christ Jesus that were at Ephesus. This chapter is one of the very most sublime and beautiful in the New Testament by its content and language. It has some unusual and precious language that the Apostle used to describe that charge he had been given to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ, and then the wording of his prayer at the end of this chapter is very special indeed. Let us all stand together and ask the Lord's blessing upon the reading and preaching of His Word. Father in heaven, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, and the blessed God that called our brother Paul to preach the unsearchable riches of Christ to the Gentiles, have mercy upon us now. We thank Thee for Thy precious and inspired and infallible words, and we pray that by the Holy Spirit You would open our eyes to see and our ears to hear and our hearts to understand those words as they describe the things that are most freely given to us. Heavenly Father, I tremble before this passage for I am unworthy and unable to open it properly to thy people. As Solomon prayed of old, grant wisdom that I might teach this congregation the glorious blessing that we have in the mystery that Paul revealed and the glorious opportunity that we have to be filled with all of thy fullness. Have mercy upon us now. We need thee, O Lord. If you do not bless, we shall not be blessed. But if you do bless, we shall indeed be blessed. Help us now, we ask, in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, to whom belongs all honor and glory, blessing and power, both now and forever. Amen. You may be seated. Ephesians chapter 3. The book of Ephesians is not very difficult. We have a division at the end of this chapter where we have the word Amen. And Paul concludes the first three chapters that give us a doctrinal foundation of all that he has done for us. And beginning immediately with the first verse of chapter 4, the Apostle writes, I therefore, because of what I've taught in the first three chapters, I now want to tell you how you ought to live based on what God has done for you. The first half of the book is very doctrinal. The second half of the book is very practical. When we look at the third chapter, it's also very easily divided. We have a repetition of the words, for this cause. They open the chapter, and then they take up his second thought in verse 14. Verses 1 through 13 are the Apostle Paul describing his great and illustrious office 
of preaching the gospel to the Gentiles. And verses 14 through the end of the chapter describe Paul's prayer request for these Ephesian saints. And it's a lofty prayer request indeed. And it's one that we ought to be praying for ourselves. And so we have a division between verses 13 and 14 as the apostle takes up a different line of thought from that 14th verse on. I want to read a verse and comment on it and make our way through this chapter. And may the Lord bless us with understanding of it. Ephesians chapter 3. For this cause I, Paul, the prisoner of Jesus Christ, for you Gentiles. For this cause. Now those are common words that Paul uses in writing the New Testament. But when you see the words for this cause... You look for a verb that Paul was caused to tell you about. But there's no verb immediately at hand. You go to verse 2. You go to 3. You go to 4. And you keep on going. And you're finding out what, you're wondering what cause Paul was talking about when he said, for this cause I, Paul. What does Paul want us to do? What was Paul caused to write us about? And the answer is found in verse 13. Because everything in between is describing Paul as a prisoner for the gospel's sake for us Gentiles. In verse 13, we have his verb on what he wanted these Ephesian saints to do. For this cause, I, Paul, and here's how I'm going to read it. I'm going to read verse 1, and I'm going to tie in verse 13, and you'll see. For this cause, I, Paul, the prisoner of Jesus Christ for you Gentiles, desire that ye faint not at my tribulations for you, which is your glory. The first thing that Paul teaches in Ephesians chapter 3 is for the Ephesian saints not to be discouraged nor faint because Paul was in prison and suffering tribulations. He was a prisoner and he was suffering tribulations for the Gentiles. And as Gentiles, they ought to be thankful and glorying in the great apostle they had, rather than worrying about him. And all that's between verse 1 and verse 13, all that's in between, is Paul explaining his glorious office of preaching the gospel to the Gentiles. Now he said in the second half of this verse, that he was a prisoner of Jesus Christ for you Gentiles. Now Jesus Christ wasn't holding him in prison. The Romans were holding him in prison. But he was a prisoner by the Romans for the preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it was for the Gentiles. Paul had a unique ministry among the apostles. When we read in Galatians chapter 1, Peter and James and John were apostles to the circumcision. They had Jewish ministries, and the New Testament tells us that. Not so for our brother Paul. Paul was sent to us Gentiles. And so he's a prisoner because of his ministry to the Gentiles, because he was causing such havoc in the Roman world, preaching the gospel that the law of Moses could not justify any man, not even a Jew, that the law of Moses had been set aside, and that the Gentiles were brought into the same body along with the Jews by the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. If you read the history of Paul in Acts you find out that the very reason he is in prison was because he did preach to Gentiles. The Jews hated him because he preached to Gentiles. And so he's a prisoner 
for the cause of Jesus Christ being preached to Gentiles. Remember in Acts 22 when Paul stands up and gives his testimony in the Hebrew tongue to the Jews that were gathered in Jerusalem that wanted to kill him because they had seen him in the temple with some from Ephesus. And he he preaches a sermon to them in Acts chapter 22 in the Hebrew tongue that they all give attention to and they would have been saying amen to all the way through it until he tells about his conversion experience on the road to Damascus when God called him to be an apostle to the Gentiles. And the Bible tells us that the Jews listened attentively unto this word, the word Gentiles. They could not stand that a Jew was telling the Gentiles they had as much right to God, to heaven, to justification, as did the Jews. And so we read in this first verse, that's why Paul was a prisoner, because he had preached to us Gentiles. And that 13th verse tells us, instead of fainting because he was in prison, we should glory that we had such a noble apostle. That God had called him, that God had shown him mysteries that had been kept hid from the foundation of the world, and that God sent him out to preach to us. And we have epistles today written by Paul, God's apostle to the Gentiles. Paul was never ashamed of his job. He says in several places, I magnify mine office. I am the apostle to the Gentiles. I am not one of them. I am the apostle to the Gentiles. And when we look at the New Testament epistles, the vast majority of them are written by Paul for us. So we have the first verse speaking to these Ephesian saints not to worry about him, that he was a prisoner for their sake. They ought to be glorying in that fact. And now he goes in verses 2 through 13 to describe his great office. If ye have heard of the dispensation of the grace of God, which is given me to you word. God's given me a dispensation of the grace of God to you Gentiles. A dispensation is the dispensing of something. It's the administration of something. It's the management of something. God put Paul in charge of administering and dispensing the gospel. That is the good news of the Lord Jesus Christ to the Gentiles. Paul was in charge of it. We still believe that today. There have been our ancestors in the faith that were called Paulicians. Sometimes for the name of the Apostle Paul, because they followed Paul and his doctrine so closely. And we're not going to be moved away from that doctrine. But he asked, he says here, if ye have heard. Now that if is not Paul standing in doubt or wondering if they have heard. If there was one church in the New Testament that knew about Paul's ministry, it was the Ephesian church because he spent more time there than in any other church. He said he had declared to them the whole counsel of God. He told them in Acts chapter 20 that he hadn't held back anything that was profitable for them. Surely they understood. This is Bible language. If ye have heard. It sounds like in 1 Peter chapter 2, if ye have tasted that the Lord is gracious. Have we tasted that the Lord is gracious? Indeed we have. If there be any consolation in Christ, Philippians chapter 2, is there any consolation in Christ? Indeed there is. Really, we understand those words to be saying, since there is so much consolation in Christ, since you know my illustrious office of preaching to the Gentiles, and then he goes on to describe it. 
the grace of God here is not that Paul could dispense the grace of God. That's what Rome thinks it can do. It brings along its holy chrism and thumbs a cross onto the forehead of a baby and believes that sacramentally it conveys the grace of God to that child. Paul did not bring the grace of God as far as God's forgiveness of sins. He brought the message of the grace of God or the gospel of the grace of God. He's going to tell you that preaching is what's under consideration in Ephesians chapter 3. He preached the unsearchable riches of Christ to the Gentiles. Because it's in the preaching of Christ that the message of God's grace is revealed to us. And so he tells us that in the second verse, that he had a dispensation of the grace of God that had been given to him for them, for you. A special administration Paul was charged with to carry the gospel to Gentiles. We should be thankful for that. Amen. We should be thankful, as our brother has already mentioned this morning, that the greatest of the apostles is our apostle. That the New Testament is primarily made up of epistles he wrote for us. Gentiles. You know, we read earlier this morning, and I would encourage anyone listening to this audio sermon that they go and read 1 Peter 1, verses 1 through 12, and Colossians chapter 1, verses 9 through 29. Did you notice when we were having that read to us this morning that Paul said the gospel had been preached to every creature which is under heaven? Did you notice that? In Colossians chapter 1 and verse 23. Paul got that started. And Paul did a whole lot of that, preaching the gospel to Gentiles outside the veil of Israel. You know, there are so many today that believe Jesus Christ cannot come again until the gospel is preached to every creature. Where do they get that idea from? Well, in Mark chapter 16, Jesus said, go and preach the gospel to every creature. And who did he say that to? Eleven apostles that were assembled there with him. Did he give them special power to do that? Amen. Were they able to perform miracles, speak in other tongues? Were they delivered from all sorts of persecution and trouble? Indeed. That was given to them before our Lord ascended up into heaven. But then Paul wrote Colossians chapter 1 and said that by the time he wrote that epistle, it had been done. The gospel had been preached to every creature which is under heaven. And that's what we believe. And that is part of the mystery of godliness that I read earlier in 1 Timothy 3.16. Without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh, justified in the spirit, seen of angels, preached on in the world, preached unto the Gentiles, believed on in the world, received up into glory. That is one of our mysteries that we know the gospel has been preached to every creature in the way that Jesus Christ intended it because Paul said it had been done in his day. And he was the one that put the impetus to it by leaving Antioch and going to the Gentiles and preaching to those creatures that were outside of Israel. And brethren, we were a long way from Israel and we still are to this day and the gospel has come all the way to us for which we ought to be most thankful. Amen. When you read about Paul's conversion on the road to Damascus, Acts chapter 9, Acts 22, Acts 26, three times Paul gives his testimony, and Luke records it for us in the, in the book of Acts. Three times it's there. Right. Each time we're told that when Paul rose to his feet, or when Ananias was told, there was a special mission given to Paul. Preach 
to the Gentiles. He is a chosen vessel unto me. I have a special job for our brother Paul. He was Saul at the time, but he became the apostle of the Gentiles because God gave him an administration of the gospel that hadn't been given before. And that was to go wholesale to the Gentiles in foreign countries. We come to verse 3. How did Paul get that administration? How that by revelation he made known unto me the mystery, as I wrote afore in few words. I preached the mystery to you last Sunday. It's contained there in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 through 22, where the mystery that God would unite Jews and Gentiles that were very different and they hated each other. One had the worship of God and the other had no God and was without hope in the world. And the Lord Jesus Christ put them together by abolishing all the sacrifices of the Old Testament system and uniting Jews and Gentiles into one body, one church, one kingdom to worship Him. Paul had that revelation given to him to be able to reveal what he wrote there in chapter 2. How did he get it? How did Paul know something that the other apostles did not know as clearly as he did? He got it by special revelation from the Lord Jesus Christ. Since it's so close at hand, hold your hand there at Ephesians 3 and come back to Galatians chapter 1. Come back to Galatians chapter 1. What did you have to be to be an apostle? What was the number one criteria criterion to be an apostle of Jesus Christ? You had to have seen Him risen from the dead so that you could be an eyewitness that Jesus of Nazareth had risen from the dead. In Acts chapter 1, where the apostle Peter is leading the replacement for Judas Iscariot, that was the qualification given. Of these men that have accompanied with us from the beginning, from John's baptism, until Jesus Christ was taken up into heaven, we have to ordain one to replace Judas. Now, Paul came a lot later. Did Paul see the Lord Jesus Christ? Oh, indeed. He said, I, I saw him out of order. I didn't see him with the other apostles. I was like one born out of due time, but I indeed saw him. And if you'll read your Bible carefully you will see in a number of places, and the Lord appeared unto Paul. And the Lord appeared unto Paul. And when the Lord commissioned Paul in Acts, He told him that you're going to preach the things that I've revealed to you, and in the which I shall appear unto thee. There were some future appearances that the Lord Jesus Christ was going to make to Paul. And we're not told very many details about them, but Paul's gospel was not given to him by anyone from Israel. It was given to him by the Lord Jesus Christ. It was not given to him by any any seminary. It was not given to him by the Pharisees, the Sadducees, or the scribes, or the priests. It was given to him by Jesus Christ. Look at Galatians 1, verse 11. But I certify you, brethren... I certify you. Paul had a ministerial certificate. It was Holy Spirit inspiration in writing Galatians 1. I certify you, brethren, that the gospel which was preached of me is not after man. For I neither received it of man, neither was I taught it, but by the revelation of Jesus Christ. He goes on to describe his conversion in verses 13. Through 15, and look at verse 16. 
Or verse 17, Neither went I up to Jerusalem to them which were apostles before me, but I went into Arabia and returned again unto Damascus. Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem. You can come back to Ephesians 3. Paul says, I certify you, brethren, that the gospel I preached, I I wasn't taught it by men. I didn't get it from men. It's not of man. The Lord Jesus Christ revealed it to me Himself. And we're told something here that Paul went into Arabia for a period of time, and he doesn't tell us the details, but we understand that that is where Jesus Christ taught the Apostle Paul in an advanced school of theology of what he was going to preach to the Gentiles. When you go back to Acts, you find Paul getting up from the road to Damascus, going into Damascus, being strengthened, preaching the gospel, and then leaving the city. What you're not told is that he was there for over three years and that in the middle of that period of time, Galatians 1 took place. He went into Arabia and what he preached to the Gentiles was given to him by the Lord Jesus Christ. So when we read Ephesians 3.3, how that by revelation he made known unto me the mystery, we understand that Jesus Christ taught Paul personally. He didn't get it from man. He got it from the Lord Jesus himself. And he wrote it already in verses 11 through 22 of chapter 2. And that's what we looked at last Lord's Day. And so he says, as I wrote afore in few words. Just like we might say, as I mentioned in my previous paragraph, I said such and such, we don't want to repeat ourselves, and Paul doesn't want to repeat the mystery. Paul's not going to repeat the mystery right now. Paul's going to tell you his glorious role in that mystery. Because in in Ephesians chapter 2, he did not say anything about himself. He just told you about the mystery. Beginning at verse 11 and all the way to 22, Paul does not mention himself. He says in verse 17 of chapter 2 that Jesus Christ came and preached peace to you which were afar off and to them that were nigh, but he doesn't mention who does the preaching. Nowhere does Paul mention himself in chapter 2. Because that's the mystery that Jews and Gentiles would be united by Jesus Christ through the grace of God. Chapter 3 is Paul's big role in preaching that mystery. Verse 4, whereby, when ye read, ye may understand my knowledge in the mystery of Christ. And we have that in parentheses. In parentheses, Paul's putting in there, I already wrote this in an earlier chapter. They didn't have chapters when the Ephesians read it. But I wrote this afore in a few words so that when you read those words, you can understand that I have a pretty good understanding of this mystery in Jesus Christ. That's what verses 3 and 4 mean. And if you go back and read Ephesians chapter 2, 11 through 22, you have something new laid on you. This was unknown to this point in time in this clarity, with this clarity. The Apostle Paul made clear that Jews and Gentiles formed one body to worship God through the Lord Jesus Christ and by the power of the Holy Spirit. And by reading it, we can see his understanding in that mystery. Verse 5, which in other ages was not made known unto the sons of men, as it is now revealed unto his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. The other ages. The ages from Adam to Moses. From Adam to Moses, hardly anyone knew about the Jews. Because it wasn't until Abraham that there was the father of the Jewish nation. So it was unknown then. From Moses to John the Baptist. While some of the prophets made passing remarks about the conversion of the Gentiles. And it is mentioned in the Old Testament prophets. It's just here and there a little bit. 
and it's not with much clarity. I find interesting this one. In the book of Amos, chapter 8, Amos prophesied that God was going to rebuild the tabernacle of David with Gentiles. If you've ever read the Old Testament and wish that you could be in the, in the God's kingdom with David as your ruler, you've got something better than that. You are in David's kingdom, and Jesus Christ is your ruler, David's son. But in Amos chapter 8, Amos made a prophecy that James tells us that it applied to Gentile conversions. He made a prophecy that God was going to bring Gentiles in and reform the tabernacle of David. See, there are people today that are all worried about what the Jews are doing in the Middle East. The New Testament teaches us that God has united Jews and Gentiles into one body. There is no different treatment for those two peoples any further. Ye are one in Christ Jesus. There is neither Greek nor Jew, barbarian, Scythian, male, female, circumcision or uncircumcision. We're one in Christ. And God's people are distracted from the great unsearchable riches of Christ that they have by giving them to people in the Middle East that God has deserted. Except those few that are converted and made part of this one kingdom and one household of faith. Amos. What did he do? He tells us in Amos chapter 8 that God's going to bring Gentiles in to rebuild David's tabernacle, which has fallen down. The nation of Israel was not as great as it had been under David, and God's going to make it greater again. He's going to make it great with Gentiles. He tells us that in chapter 8, but in chapter 3, the same prophet says, Of all the families of the earth, I've only known you. So we see that Amos didn't see it all clearly, but the Apostle Paul did. And so when it tells us in verse 5, which in other ages was not made known, God had chosen not to reveal the fact that Gentiles were going to be brought in and we make up the majority of the kingdom of Jesus Christ today. No one knew it. Except in little bits and pieces and hints here and there, but the Apostle Paul knew it well. And he tells us that it is now being revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. The Holy Spirit was showing the Jewish apostles, and they were all Jews, weren't they? That's tough. When you've got Jews that are raised to believe in their nation, to believe in their religion, to believe in their temple, to believe in their priests, to convince those Jews to go and preach to Gentiles, that was a tough thing to do. Let me tell you how the Holy Spirit did it. In Acts chapter 10, around noon, Peter went up hungry on the rooftop waiting for lunch to be prepared. And while he's sitting there hungry in a trance, God lets down a sheet from heaven with all sort of unclean animal animals in it and says, rise, slay, and have lunch. I'm paraphrasing it a little bit to keep you awake. Peter said, not so, Lord. I've never touched any unclean thing and I'm not going to touch those. The sheet went back up into heaven then it came back down again. And the second time it said, and the third time it said, and Peter's wondering, what in the world does this thing mean? The Lord's trying to get me to eat something unclean that I'm not supposed to eat. And about that time, he says, there's some men at the gate that want to see you. And the men weren't Jews. The men were soldiers and servants from the Italian band. And that's why I mentioned Italians last Sunday. Did you know that there's Italians in the Bible? Italians were the first converted Gentiles that a big deal was made about in the New Testament. We have Acts chapter 10, Acts chapter 11, and Acts chapter 15 that tell us about the conversion of Italians in Acts 10. 
Peter comes down and he goes with those servants and he arrives at a man's house named Cornelius. He goes into the house and the man has gathered together all his friends and family and there's this huge gathering there of Gentiles. And Peter says, listen to this, it's so glorious. Peter says, don't you all know that it's unlawful for me, a Jew, to be in an assembly like this with all you Gentiles? But God hath showed me that I ought not to call Gentiles unclean anymore. Praise His name, brethren. Do you understand that? Peter was shown by the Holy Spirit in that trance that he could go and preach the gospel to Cornelius. And immediately after that, looking at Cornelius' attitude and hearing Cornelius' testimony, what does Peter say by the Holy Ghost? Of a truth. I perceive that God is no respecter of persons, but in every nation including Italy, those that fear God and work righteousness are accepted with Him. God had already accepted Cornelius and his family in Acts chapter 10, and Peter recognized it. Cornelius did not get born again by hearing Peter preach the gospel. Cornelius was born again before Peter got there with the gospel. But Cornelius didn't know what he was supposed to do with his new born again nature until Peter got there and preached in the gospel. And they had one great baptism service that day, didn't they? What did Peter end up saying by the Holy Ghost? Who can forbid water? Get these people baptized. They've got the same gift that we had after baptism. The Lord's given it to them in front of baptism. And we could go forward. We could go into Acts 15 and see James stand up and say, we've heard from Paul, we've heard from Simon. Now I want to tell you the summary of what we need to do. God is bringing Gentiles into His church and building the tabernacle of David with them. Acts 15. This is the fulfillment of verse 5, and it's what Paul means, that it had not been known before, but now it's being revealed to His holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. What was being revealed? Verse 6. That the Gentiles should be fellow heirs. Fellow heirs of heaven? Gentiles can't go to heaven. That's what a Jew thought. If you, if you didn't have Abraham to your father, you were plumb out of luck. That the Gentiles should be fellow heirs and of the same body and partakers of his promise in Christ by the gospel. That is what had not been revealed before. That Gentiles could go to heaven as easily and as quickly and as graciously as any Jew could ever get there. Because Jesus Christ had to wipe out the ordinances that were against the Jews and the ordinances that the Gentiles weren't even privileged enough to have. It's by His shed blood on the cross that He united both into one body and opened up heaven for them by the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. That the Gentiles should be fellow heirs and of the same body, the same body we went over so much last Lord's Day from chapter 2, the same church, the same kingdom, the same household of faith, Fellow citizens are we all, Jews and Gentiles. Partakers of His promise in Christ by the Gospel. Now this is interesting. And I hope that when you read, you do have some sort of curiosity, a godly curiosity for every word. That they might be partakers of His promise in Christ by the Gospel. Now fellow heirs has already mentioned heaven and all the blessings that God has, the inheritance that He has for us. But here is partakers of a promise by the gospel. What is this promise? 
And how are they partaking of it? And how does the gospel give it to them? We should ask that. Well, remember when you're in Ephesians chapter 3, there is a context to every verse in the Bible. When you're in Ephesians chapter 3, it is understood by Paul and the Spirit that you have already read Ephesians 1 and 2. If you have not read Ephesians 1 and 2, you ought not to be in Ephesians 3 because you won't fully understand it unless you read the foundation that He's already given you. Was there something given by promise based on the preaching of the Gospel and those that believed it that the Ephesians could partake of and that all gent... The Holy Spirit of God. Look at verses 13 and 14 of chapter 1. Ephesians 1, 13 and 14. In whom, speaking of Jesus Christ, ye also trusted, after that ye heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. In whom also after that ye believed, ye were sealed with that Holy Spirit of promise, which is the earnest of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession unto the praise of His glory. In this verse in Ephesians 3, he's already mentioned the inheritance, but now he mentions partaking of a promise by the gospel. And that's the preaching of the gospel, which when believed, you are sealed with the Holy Spirit that God has promised to give His children until they're in heaven. The personal presence of God through His Holy Spirit. And if you were to read the whole book of Ephesians, and I don't have time right now to show you all the references, the Spirit of God is mentioned as one of the great blessings of the Gospel in every chapter. But it starts right there. So when I've got chapter 1, verses 13 and 14 under my reading belt, and I get to chapter 3 and verse 6, I know how to partake, what the partaking is, and what the promise is, and how it follows the Gospel. Because the order is very clear in 13 and 14 of chapter 1, that when you hear the preaching of the Gospel and you believe it, God then seals you with His Holy Spirit. And that is a great blessing of the New Testament. Look at Galatians chapter 3 and verse 14 so that I can show you another cross-reference to confirm your understanding of Ephesians 3, 6. Galatians chapter 3 and verse 14, that the blessing of Abraham might come on the Gentiles through Jesus Christ. Galatians 3.14. It's only a few pages away. Don't go to the Old Testament looking for it. It's only a few pages away. Galatians 3.14. That the blessing of Abraham might come on the Gentiles through Jesus Christ, that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. There's that same great blessing. And he's, before we get out of this chapter, he's going to be talking about that Holy Spirit giving us His might in the inner man to be strengthened with the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. It is a great blessing of the New Testament. The Holy Spirit was God's presence. In the Old Testament, only the Jews had it. And they had to have a tabernacle and a temple to get it. But in the New Testament, it's given to all the Gentiles. It's a fantastic blessing. The presence and glory of God present with us. Not with us. Let's get better than that. In us. So that we are the temple of the Holy Ghost. Does it say that in 1 Corinthians 6? That your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost? Is that a little bit better than the Holy of Holies of some little tent? Praise God. This is a great blessing. Ephesians 3, 6. Partakers of His promise in Christ by the Gospel. Speaking of the Gospel, verse 7, Whereof I was made a minister 
according to the gift of the grace of God given unto me by the effectual working of His power. Was it the grace of God that called Paul? What was Paul doing when the Lord called him to the ministry? Was he at a missionary conference? Or was he on the road to Damascus to see how many Christians he could kill or put into prison? Does that, does that tell us a little bit about the grace of God? Amen. Amen. Saul of Tarsus had authority from the chief priests in Jerusalem, was on his way to Damascus to put Christians into prison, and that's when he was made a minister. That's when the Lord Jesus Christ appeared to him, and it didn't take long, did it? Lord, what wilt thou have me to do? What could change a man that fast? The grace of the living God. And by the effectual working of his mighty power. He went into Damascus, and for three days he had no sight, and he prayed. And then he was baptized, and they gave him a meal. Ananias came in unto him, and the scales fell off his eyes. And what did he want to do? He wanted to preach. And they let him go loose in the synagogue in Damascus. And he walked into that synagogue with letters in his back pocket to kill Christians and preached Christ. Is that the effectual working of His mighty power? As, as Gentiles, we ought to be excited about the Apostle Paul and what God did to raise him up for us. That's verse 7. Verse 8, here's Paul describing himself unto me. God exercised His effectual power and His great grace in calling me and making me a minister to tell these things that have been kept secret since the world began. Unto me, Paul writes, who am less then the least of all saints is this grace given that I should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. You know, sometimes Paul says, I labored more abundantly than they all. Sometimes Paul says, I was not a whit behind the very chiefest of the apostles. In this place, Paul says, I was less than the least of all saints. What language? Is that pretty low? Less than the least of all saints. Was this grace given? Now remember the whole purpose for this long expanded description. You Ephesians, don't faint about me. Glory in me. I should be your glory, not your cause of fainting. You should be thanking and praising God that you have such an apostle. Look what God gave me to give to you. The reason I'm a prisoner is for your sakes. I'm happy being a prisoner. Because I was given a special mission and I fulfilled it with all my might. But look at who I am. Look at God's grace and His power in making me the minister to the Gentiles. Verse 9. Well, verse 8 told us about the unsearchable riches of Christ. What does unsearchable mean? Does it mean we shouldn't search them? Or does it mean if we search them, we're never going to find them all out? Do you know what our biggest problem is in life? You don't search the riches of Jesus Christ enough. Lay aside everything else in the Word of God. You ought to be searching the riches of Jesus Christ. And we will face that face to face before we can get out of this third chapter. The unsearchable riches of Jesus Christ will change your life. If it doesn't change your life, there's two issues at stake. One, you have not searched them. Two, you are not a child of God. The unsearchable riches of Jesus Christ will change your life. 
And I fear that we get too distracted with other things in the Word of God. We want to learn other things that are not so focused on the riches of Jesus Christ. Paul goes on to say in verse 9, And to make all men see what is the fellowship of the mystery, which from the beginning of the world hath been hid in God, who created all things by Jesus Christ. God had hid this new administration of things in Himself from the beginning of the world. Men did not know that all the Gentiles were going to be reached by the preaching of the gospel through Paul and others. This was a mystery. This had not been seen before. It had been a secret. But now it was being revealed to Paul and the other apostles, and they were preaching the gospel to Gentiles. And Paul's goal was to make all men see. It's what God had called him to do. All the Gentiles that Paul could get to, he was going to preach the unsearchable riches of Christ that the Gentiles were included in God's plan of salvation for them. And you know, there's statements in the Bible, like in Acts chapter 20, where Paul said, I am free from the blood of all men. It says that there were none in Asia that did not hear the preaching of the gospel by Paul's mouth. Now, that Asia was not the Asia you understand, but it was still a large territory. It's the Asia understood by New Testament writers, and that was the Roman Asia, modern western Turkey. But still, the Apostle Paul, without the the means of mass communication, had preached the gospel widely. His enemies would say of him, "He that he those that have turned the world upside down have come hither." He wanted to make all men see what is the fellowship of the mystery. What is that fellowship? The religious community of Jews and Gentiles together in one body that had been kept a mystery from the foundation of the world but was now revealed through the preaching of the gospel. And we have this little expression about God who created all things by Jesus Christ. And we have Jesus Christ lifted up again. In verse 8, what do we have about Jesus Christ? The unsearchable riches of Christ. What do we have in verse 9? Jesus Christ created all things. Now, if you're looking at an NIV this morning, it doesn't say that Jesus Christ created all things. Right. It says God created all things, and it leaves off our poor Lord Jesus Christ. But I'm going to tell you something about my Lord Jesus Christ. He's not poor, and He's not cut out of His Word. God created all things by Jesus Christ. I know that because the Bible tells me in John 1, 3, all things were made by Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. Hebrews chapter 1 and verses 2 and 3 tells me that God, by His Son, made the worlds. We had read in our hearing this morning from Colossians chapter 1 that the Lord Jesus Christ made all things that are visible or invisible. They were made by Him and for Him. Praise His glorious name. All other modern translations of the Bible in Ephesians chapter 3 and verse 9 do not have the last three words. By Jesus Christ. They are removed. We come to verse 10. Jesus Christ has been lifted up in verse 8. Jesus Christ has been lifted up in verse 9. And now we come to verse 10. And it to me is the most exciting verse of the first 13 in this chapter. Let me put it to you this way. God chose you. To be a cosmic object lesson for all the angels in heaven. God chose this church to be an object lesson to the angels of heaven 
about His manifold wisdom in the plan of redemption to save us from our depravity and from our sins. This is a fantastic verse. The Apostle Paul is telling us, he's building his case up through these verses. God chose me, who am less than the least of all saints, to preach the unsearchable riches of Jesus Christ, to make manifest to all men what had been hid in God up to this point. And what is the intention now? Look at the word now you have in verse 10. To the intent that now. To the intent. This is the purpose. One of the purposes, obviously, is for Gentiles to be converted and to be brought into the church along with Jews. But there's another intent. To the intent that now, because of the preaching of the gospel, information is being spread that even the angels in heaven did not know about. Don't think that the angels in heaven are equal to God. They are not. When Jesus Christ spoke of the time of His coming, what did He say? That it is in His Father's hand and not even the angels of heaven know it. Angels of heaven have limited knowledge. They only know what God reveals to them and allows them to know. Through the preaching of the gospel and the bringing in of depraved, pagan, profane, idol-worshipping Gentiles, the angels in heaven were getting an object lesson of God's manifold wisdom. To the intent. This is the purpose One of the purposes, God raised up Paul to preach the gospel and to make known this thing that had been hid in God from the foundation of the world to the intent that now unto the principalities and powers in heavenly places might be known by the church the manifold wisdom of God. This verse is only difficult by the way that by the church is located in the sentence or in the clause. To the intent that now under the principalities and powers in heavenly places might be known. The intent of revealing that Gentiles were going to be saved along with Jews was for the purpose of the principalities and powers in heavenly places learning something, that they might know something. And what is it that they should know? The manifold wisdom of God. God's, God's incredible wisdom in the whole plan of redemption of humanity. I mean, of, of His elect among humans. He, he did not send a Redeemer for angels. Lucifer sinned, and the angels that fell with him, and they were immediately chained and reserved for everlasting judgment. There was no Redeemer provided, but for a lower race of beings, you and me, men, as wicked as we were, we, and we have been wicked as a race. We have defied the God of heaven. We are depraved. We are profane. We have worshipped sticks and stumps. No angel, not even a fallen angel, ever worshipped a stick or a stump. They know who God is. They know who the Lord Jesus Christ is. And they were bypassed. No Redeemer provided for them. You know, I get so tired of hearing people say, election isn't fair because God didn't save everyone. If they are so concerned about God being fair, why don't they get upset about God not sending a Redeemer for the devil and His angels? They're of far greater value than you or me. We're created lower than the angels. He was the anointed cherub of God. Why wasn't He saved? Because God wanted to show His manifold wisdom by digging a little deeper, brethren, because He wants you to know the dimensions of the love of Christ 
of how deep they go. Do you know how deep they go? They go right past the angels all the way down into this sinful world to pull you out of this cesspool. To pull me out of it. And if it, if it reached me, it's deep. You're going to see that word before I get out of this chapter. That we might comprehend the depth of the love of God Amen. in Christ Jesus our Lord. I'll tell you how deep it is. It came all the way down and got you and me. Right. And that is deep. That is deep, deep love Amen. of the Lord Jesus Christ for us. Yes, there's a song like that, Francis. Verse 10, God has revealed all this for this purpose, to the intent that with this new revelation of things and how broad God's grace goes, how broad His wisdom goes, oh, is there a width to the love of God? Is there a breadth to the love of God? It's now so broad that it reaches all the way to the Gentiles on the other side of the earth where we meet and assemble this very morning, to the intent that now under the principalities and powers in heavenly places. Principalities and powers are angels. You know, we're going to be told in just a few chapters that we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers. Now, if principalities and powers, and it means rulers, Greenville County is a principality. Principalities and powers means rulers. But if these rulers don't have flesh and blood, what kind of rulers are they? They're angelic rulers. But these particular principalities and powers, where are they? In heavenly places. They're the, they're the elect and holy angels. And God wants to give them an object lesson of His great wisdom in how He's able to save men that are below them and their race. And how does He do it? By the church. By the way that He redeemed you and me and put us into the family of God called the church here. It is by His display of wisdom and grace and kindness toward the church through Jesus Christ that he gives an object lesson to the angels in heaven of his manifold wisdom. Verse 10. It's a glorious verse. If you ever don't ever think that you are not important in this universe, you are important in this way. God has used you. Praise his glorious name. God has used you to display his manifold wisdom to the angelic host. They cannot believe that he would save any of us. Which things the angels desire to look into. When our brother read 1 Peter 1 verse 12 this morning, do you know he was reading for a long time to get to one clause? He read a long time. And it was all great, wonderful, glorious things. But to that clause, which things the angels desire to look into. The angels cannot believe that he would save you. And if that offends you, the angels cannot believe that he would save me. That 10th verse is just, it's, God wants to give an object lesson. The only reason God ever created anything, he didn't need playmates. The Bible tells us why God created. The Lord hath made all things for himself. Yea, even the wicked for the day of evil. Revelation 4.11 Thou art worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power, for Thou hast created all things, and for Thy pleasure they are and were created. That is what this church believes from top to bottom, that we were created for one purpose, and that's the glory of God Himself. 
and he has used us. And I praise his great and glorious name for choosing to use me as one of his object lessons for the angels that he could adopt, that he would adopt, that he could pay a price big enough to reach down and adopt me as his son. Amen. Is that glorious? That's Ephesians 3.10. Verse 11, when did he come up with this idea? According to the eternal purpose which he purposed in Christ Jesus our Lord. You don't have any problem with that verse, do you? Known unto God are all his works from the foundation of the world. Verse 12, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence by the faith of him. Do we have access and, and boldness and confidence to go straight to God? Through whom? Through the Lord Jesus Christ and faith in Him. This, the faith of Him. Do not jump at those words and say they have to be the faith of Jesus Christ. I do not believe they are in this case. Because it is our faith by which we have access into this grace wherein we stand. Romans chapter 5 and verse 2 and other places. This is when we go to God in prayer. Hebrews chapter 4 verses 14 through 16 tell us, let us go boldly. Or let us come boldly unto the throne of grace that we may obtain help in time of need. How can we go boldly to God? The Jews couldn't go boldly to God. They had to go carefully to God. They had to go only once a year. They had to go with the high priest that took in specific blood into the holiest of all in order to make peace with God. And we can go boldly because of this new revelation that Paul showed that Jesus Christ has opened up a new and living way for Gentiles to worship God personally, boldly, and with confidence. Never seen before in the world. Not made clear like the Apostle Paul makes it clear here. In the Lord Jesus Christ, verse 12, we have and access confidence by the faith of Him. By understanding that we have a mediator between God and man, we are able to go with boldness and confidence into God's presence. Verse 13, Wherefore, because of everything I've just told you about the role God's given me, wherefore I desire that ye faint not at my tribulations for you, which is your glory. Don't faint because I'm in prison. Don't worry about me suffering a little bit. It ought to be your glory because look at how God has used me to you word. Yes, I'm a prisoner, as verse 1 says. I'm a prisoner of Jesus Christ for your sakes. You can imagine, the did the Ephesians love the Apostle Paul? When Paul came and visited them for the last time, did they accompany him all the way to his ship and knelt down the sand and hugged on his neck before he left? We're told about that in Acts chapter 20. They loved our brother Paul. To have heard that he was in a Roman prison. Caesar did not have a Congress or a Supreme Court sitting in judgment on him, telling him how the accommodations in a Roman prison ought to be. There wasn't a Geneva Convention telling Caesar the rules that he ought to follow in imprisoning preachers of the gospel. The Ephesian saints heard about Paul being in prison and they would have worried. But he writes and says, don't faint about me. I'm a prisoner for your sakes. Look what God did. God raised me up. I'm, the, I'm less than the least of all saints. But look what He's given me to preach. And He's given it to me for your sakes. You should be glorying in me. You should be glorying in how God's used me. And that ends the first half of the chapter. And so he says the same words again that he began with. For this cause. Because the Apostle Paul loved these Gentile saints 
He is going to make a prayer for them, and we're about to read a prayer that is almost beyond reading and understanding. It is such a shame that most Christians barely survive as Christians rather than succeeding and prospering as the sons of God. And do you know why? Because a passage like this is too boring to them. Because a passage like this is neglected to the detriment of the churches of Jesus Christ. Let us read and humble ourselves before one fantastic prayer for the saints of the church of Ephesus, which applies just as well to you and me. For this cause, I bow my knees unto the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. What glorious language. I bow my knees unto the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. When Solomon dedicated the first temple, what position did he get in? On his knees. When he got on his knees and lifted up his arms to heaven and blessed that temple and asked God to fill it, did God fill it? How full was it? Could anyone else squeeze in? Could the priests minister, is my question. Could the priests of God get into the temple to minister? No, the glory of God filled the place they couldn't get in. It was filled with all the fullness of God, wasn't it? On his knees, he opened up a temple to the Jews, Solomon did, and God filled it so that the priests could not stand to minister. For this cause I bow my knees unto the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, of whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named. You like your family name? Does your family name in this earth have a few blots on it? Do you have another family name? You're part of the family of God. God is your Father, and we are all the sons and daughters of Almighty God. We are the adopted sons of God, joint heirs with the Lord Jesus Christ. We have a position that far excels the angels of heaven. Do you know what the Bible tells us the angels of heaven are? Our servants. Our servants. See, the God of heaven doesn't know anything about the Emancipation Proclamation. The God of heaven has made the angels our servants. Isn't that glorious? Unbelievable. Unbelievable. The angels would be our servants and we would be elevated to the sons of God. And so it is said of us in that 15th verse, the whole family in heaven and earth is named. The reason is the whole family in heaven and earth Do you realize that much of the family of God is already in heaven? In Hebrews chapter 12, we are told that they are the spirits of just men made perfect. Just men justified by the grace of God through the Lord Jesus Christ and His righteousness are already in heaven. But we are part of the same family. And not a single one will be lost. The Lord Jesus Christ said in John chapter 6, 
Verses 38 and 39, I came down from heaven not to do mine own will, but the will of him that sent me. And this is the Father's will which hath sent me, that of all which he hath given me, I should lose nothing, but should raise it up again at the last day. There is not a single member of the family of God that will ever be lost. Jesus Christ has guaranteed it. Of whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named, Hebrews 2.13 tells me that the Lord Jesus Christ will present us to God with these words, Behold, I and the children which thou hast given me. Isaiah 53 and verse 10 tells me that Jesus Christ, when he hung on the cross, saw his seed. He saw his family for whom he died, that he was not going to lose a single one of them. And so the apostle begins his prayer by saying, For this cause I bow my knees unto the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, of whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named, that he would grant you, that he would grant you any good thing you ever have in life is because God granted it. Some of you that are going to school are hoping for a grant from the U.S. government. That means a gift. That means some tuition paid. A grant. A gift. Any good thing you ever have is by the grant of the God of heaven. You can look at all the natural aspects of your life. You can look at your parents. You can look at your height. You can look at your IQ. You can look at your coordination. You can look at the opportunities you've had. You can look at being born in this country. All of those natural things are by the grant of God and His grace. But that is not what the Apostle is talking about here. He is talking about something far greater than that. And I want to tell you, it is only by the grant of our Father in Heaven that we ever have these things. When a man on earth grants... The extent of his grant is limited to his own wealth. Men can only give gifts to the extent of their own wealth. So this verse goes on to say something about the wealth of God. That He would grant you according to the riches of His glory. Do you think He can ever run out? Have you ever studied infinity? God can never run out. He can give you riches that will overwhelm you. And He's about to describe them. But I'm working my way there. He can give you riches that will overwhelm you and He will not run short nor out, nor will He even know that He's given anything out of the riches of His glory because it will be just as full when He ends giving you His grant as it was when He began. There is no limit to the riches of our God in glory. And so it tells us there, according to the riches of His glory, Paul's prayer was, I bow my knees to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who is the Father of the whole family of God in heaven and earth, that He would grant this blessing according to the riches of His glory. And here comes the blessing. To be strengthened with might by His Spirit in the inner man. God the Holy Spirit to strengthen us in our inner man. I have an outward man. It perishes every day. It's dying right now. You have an outward man. It's our body. It's what we see outwardly. We feed it food. We take in water. That outward man is perishing. 
on average, it's going to live to be about 73 years of age, according to Psalm 90 in verse 10 or 12. That's my outward man. But we have an inner man that is my heart and my spirit. He's going to tell you that in the next verse. Just The inner man is not strictly the new man. The new man is part of the inner man. The inner man is your inward heart, affections, spirit, thoughts, choices, the motivating part of your being. The body just responds to whatever the inner man tells it to do. Unfortunately, because of our depravity, the outer man is often telling the inner man what we're going to do. But the prayer here is that we would be strengthened with might by His Spirit in the inner man. That God would grant us an infusion and a blessing and a presence of His Holy Spirit that would give us great might and strength to resist this world, to resist sin, to love the things of heaven, to choose God over the things of this life, not to be distracted with the cares of this life. All the strength that we need to live a God-pleasing life. All the strength we need to fulfill the first nine verses that were read to us from Colossians chapter 1. Verses 9 through 18 is one long sentence by our brother Paul. And it listed all the things that Paul prayed for those Colossians. But there's only one way we can ever achieve them. To be strengthened with God's might by His Holy Spirit in the inner man. Now Paul is praying this for these Ephesians. And for all those Gentiles and Jews that are in the family of God. In verse 16, he said that he would grant you. Now, we know this church at Ephesus was already a good church. It tells us that in chapter 1. This is something beyond conversion. This is something beyond just spiritual enlightenment. This is being strengthened with might in our inner man to be successful, victorious, prosperous Christians rather than those barely surviving. That He would grant you according to the riches of His glory to be strengthened with might by His Spirit, inner man. What did Paul really want by that strength in the inner man from the Holy Spirit of God for these saints? What What was he driving at? What was the real goal of this Holy Spirit strength in a child of God? in a Christian, in a believer. Verse 17, that Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith. That the Holy Spirit of God would so lift you up out of the distractions and delusions and deceitfulness of your own heart and of this world that you would grow in faith to where you could lay hold on Jesus Christ in a way that you have not before. That He could dwell in your hearts by faith. Now, Jesus Christ does dwell by His Spirit in the heart of every born-again child of God. But that Holy Spirit can be quenched and grieved. But when that Holy Spirit is loosed to be strong and to strengthen you with might, you are able by faith to lay hold of Jesus Christ in a way that you otherwise could not. Jesus said, If a man love me, he will keep my commandments, and my Father will come to him, and I will come to him, And we will make our abode with Him. John chapter 14. It is based on our faith. And our faith is weak at times. Faith, what is it? It believes God is. And God is a rewarder of them that diligently seek Him. But we get distracted with our jobs, our families, our marriages, our children. We get distracted with our health, our bodies, 
our appearance, our cars. We get so distracted by things that we fall short of Paul's goal for us. And we are not being the object lesson that we could be. That Christ may dwell by faith. The greater your faith is, you can reach out and see and know Jesus Christ and how true he, truly He came into this world and how fully He paid for our sins. You would not be doubting your salvation with this kind of Christ dwelling in your hearts. But it's by faith and it takes the blessing of the Spirit of God to have that measure of faith. This is an increased measure. This is something Paul's praying for saints that were already known for their faith because he's already told us that in chapter 1, verse 15, when he said, I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus, and yet he's praying that they would be strengthened to have more faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Any doubt you have about your salvation, any frustration you have in life, any discontentment, any unhappiness, I'll tell you where it comes from. You have failed to make this prayer and to be strengthened by God's Holy Spirit in laying hold of the Lord Jesus Christ. If you ever got a hold of the Lord Jesus Christ a little bit like Paul, it would change your life. And you, you wouldn't know those things. Verse 17 said that Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith that ye, those Ephesian saints and us indirectly, being rooted and grounded in love. For you to succeed as a Christian, you need to be rooted and grounded in love. That is the love of God for you through Jesus Christ. That needs to be the foundation for your life. The roots of a tree are those long underground branches that go down reaching for strength, stability, water, and nutrients to make the tree prosperous. And where should those roots reach in the life of a child of God? Into the love of God through Jesus Christ. If it's a building, a building better be built on a foundation that's secure. And so it says grounded. You want to have footings that are deep. And what do they need to reach down toward? What's the bedrock of a child of God's life? The love of God through Christ Jesus our Lord. Because if we ever get a hold of that, it will change your life. Nothing in this world could ever hurt you if you were grounded and rooted in the love of God for you. You wouldn't worry about what you lost in this life because you would have that. But there's so many Christians that are disillusioned and unhappy because they haven't achieved enough in this life. Who cares about this life? The apostle didn't. He said, the love of Christ constraineth me. And it sure did constrain the apostle Paul, didn't it? It made him a great man in serving the Lord because he was rooted and grounded in love. Verse 18, Paul goes on in this prayer to describe exactly what he means. That you may be able to comprehend with all saints what is the breadth and length and depth and height. Look at the dimensions of the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. To comprehend. We cannot comprehend this. This is a thing that is past knowledge, as the next verse is going to tell us, without the help of the Holy Spirit of God. God must reveal this to us. Back in chapter 1, Paul prayed for the spirit of enlightenment to open their eyes and under uh, the eyes of their understanding to understand spiritual things. And here he's doing it again. And this is a good church. But how many churches are are distracted with programs, activities, 
the Great Commission, when this is what Paul said we ought to be praying for. You can read every epistle of the Apostle Paul. There is not one verse, not one sentence about the Great Commission, except that it was fulfilled. The emphasis on the epistles of the New Testament are that we would be spiritually minded and pray for this goal. be able. You are unable to comprehend the dimensions of God's love and Christ's love for you without Holy Spirit power. What is the breadth? I'll tell you how broad the love of God is. It reached all the way to you. It reached all the way around the earth. It reached all the way to the Gentiles. It reached all the way to your pagan ancestors and to you. It's broad to comprehend how broad it is. It had looked so narrow. God said, I have set my love on you, the nation of Israel. That's how broad the love of God is. It's broad enough to reach to you. What about its length? I'll tell you how long the love of God is. It began in eternity, and it's going to run to eternity. And there's not going to be any break in it. Everyone you meet in this life, there's going to be breaks in their love. No matter how much trust you put in them, there's going to be breaks in their love, but there is none in the love of God. It, it began before the foundation of the world, and it will extend beyond this world being melted and burned up. That's, how, that's the length of the love of God. It will never fail. Right. He will never leave us nor forsake us. Amen. You can never be separated from it. Neither life nor death nor any other creature shall be able to separate you from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. It says the depth of His love... He mentioned that this morning, that he was able to reach deep enough to save you and me beyond the, the fallen angels. He was able to reach down into this mass of rebellious mankind and our profanity and our ignorance and our rebellion and save us. And how about its height? I'll tell you about its height. You can go over and read the first three chapters of Revelation and God is going to raise his children up to sit on his throne with him. You're a joint heir with Jesus Christ. Do you want to talk about height? How high is the love of God? It was able to reach all the way down to you, and it's able to take you all the way up to be a son of God, to be a joint heir with Jesus Christ, to be an heir of God. We're going to inherit our Father, and we are going to sit with Him in His throne. That is high. That's the breadth, the length, the depth, and the height in just a few minutes. And this is, this is a verse and this is a thought that we ought to think on often. But you'll never be able to comprehend it without praying for the Spirit of God. And Paul went on in verse 19 to say, and to know the love of Christ. I thought he had already said that, that he wanted us to comprehend it. I thought that he wanted us to, by faith, have Christ dwell in our hearts, but he wants us to know it intimately, personally, passionately, experimentally, to know the love of Christ beyond just head knowledge, beyond just tongue singing. To know it in our hearts by faith and to lay hold of Jesus Christ. What a Savior! What manifold wisdom! God was on earth to deliver us, Gentiles. And He'll not lose a single one of us. To know the love of Christ which passeth knowledge. Now if it passeth knowledge, can we know it? Why is the Apostle saying we ought to know something that can't be known? Because you'll never plumb all of its depths. It's unsearchable. But you can know it by the power of the Holy Spirit. Not in its entirety, because you're going to be trying to know it for all of eternity. As God reveals His love to you, that in the ages to come, 
as chapter 2 and verse 7 told us, that in the ages to come, He might show the exceeding riches of His kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. What's the final ultimate goal? That ye might be filled with all the fullness of God. It doesn't say that you might walk with God. It doesn't say that you might have God. It doesn't say that you might be filled with God. It doesn't say that you might be full of God. It doesn't say that you might have all God. It says that you might be filled with all the fullness of God. As much as God is able to dwell in a man or a woman or a child, as much as God is able to give you the comfort of His presence, the assurance of your salvation, the strength to resist sin, the desire for holiness, as much as He is able to commune with you as friend to friend, that is achievable by the power of the Holy Spirit and laying hold of the love of Christ by faith. We read about Enoch walking with God and we desire it. This description here is a whole lot more than that. This description here is being filled with all the fullness of God. What is the fullness of God? God fills heaven and earth. To be filled with His fullness. I ask you, when was the last time you prayed this prayer? Isn't it a shame what we spend most of our time praying for? And this is where we ought to pray. To know the love of Christ, which passeth knowledge that ye might be filled with all the fullness of God. That was Paul's goal for the Ephesian saints, and it ought to be our goal for ourselves. And here's his doxology. Now unto him that is able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we ask or think, according to the power that worketh in us, unto him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus throughout all ages, world without end. Amen. So many times people have memorized Ephesians 3.20. Now unto him that is able to do exceeding abundantly above what we might ask or think. And they use it for cars. They use it for jobs. I was looking for a secretarial job and I got a job to be an administrative assistant. And they quote Ephesians 3.20. Brethren, don't abuse the Bible. Don't abuse the Bible like that. Do you know what he's talking about here? It's in context. Being filled with all the fullness of God. And the very verse itself tells us that what he's talking about is according to the power that worketh in us. That was those spiritual blessings that we just read about. Don't abuse this verse. Let's look at this verse and understand that as high as I can tell you, as high as you can imagine, God is able to exceedingly abundantly above that Give you His fullness in this world. That is an unbelievable riches of our religion in Jesus Christ our Lord. And what's the purpose for our church? Unto Him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus throughout all ages, world without end. Amen. The purpose of our church is the glory of God by Jesus Christ. And the second service today, we're going to give God the glory for His salvation and His grace toward us in His loving kindness through Christ Jesus. May Jesus Christ be praised.